Hi everyone, Paul here, and before I turn it over to Eugene for a very timely conversation with Olamide, I felt compelled to share with you all a a short story about somebody who recently reached out to us after listening to our podcast, which is a huge honor. And this person who is a, a South Korean diplomat shared with us that they have been separated from uh, their wife, who is pregnant with their first child due to the travel restrictions and the pandemic, and this feeling of frustration and despair, and uh, which I'm sure a lot of us are feeling. Um, but I think what also resonated with me was that this person shared that by living firsthand, th- this feeling of separation from their family and loved ones, they were able to understand on a, on a deeper level the experience that their 91-year-old grandfather felt uh, after a lifetime of being separated from their family and their hometown in North Korea. So why I wanted to share this was just to help frame this conversation in, in the midst of the pandemic. And really the reason why we were doing this podcast in the first place is, you know, we all know, we all knew starting out that there's family separation everywhere in basically every country throughout all periods of history. But what we are trying to do on a deeper level is help each other expand our limits of empathy and understanding and make connections um, through storytelling. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Nodlamide. instincts here where like many of the other tragic historical events we talk about on this podcast uh, there's just kind of a desire to make sure that it doesn't get lost or that it's forgotten and especially this is especially kind of the case for me where after this is all over there's definitely going to be this kind of gaslighting that's going to take place where um, I feel like our country is going to start acting like you know this never happened our systemic failures here are nothing to worry about like everything is going to be fine it's all just a bad memory and I think this is just our small attempt as a podcast to kind of hang on to uh, how we're feeling now um, and to get just, I don't know, preserve some uh, aspects of the pandemic as it is lived in the spring of, what is it, 2020? Well, of course, 2020, where (laughs) everything has gone wrong. Um, So yeah, today I have here with me Olamide Omadeli. He's a a friend of a friend who graduated early from Mount Sinai Medical School uh, to help fill the need for hospital workers. So thank you so much for your time and for being here. Oh, no, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So just to start off, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you work and uh, what you're doing these days? <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was born in Nigeria. I grew up in Houston, uh, Texas, pretty much the bulk of my life. Uh, I moved to New York when I was 18 to uh, attend undergrad. Ended up going to medical school after that. Um, I'm at medical school or was at medical school at Mount Sinai uh, in New York. I matched into urology, and then right now I'm part of the medical corps, uh, which is a group of students who, uh, you know, volunteer to graduate early, 
and like help out and, you know, relieve some of the burden that the coronavirus is putting on uh, hospitals in New York. So, yeah, right now I'm just, you know, working in the hospital, trying to be as helpful as possible. Mm -hmm. And could you kind of bring us back into, you know, the couple months leading up to graduation or at least I would say like December, I guess, December, maybe January. Um, Like how did things start to change for you? And was it more obvious that this was going to be a huge you know, pandemic in the medical community, or was that still kind of insulated in the American mentality of this is no big deal. We're America, <laughs> you know, like nothing, nothing ever bad happens here. So like, uh, did you kind of have that insulation or what kind of happened there? Yeah. I mean, going back to like uh, December or even like the new year. Um, so urology matches early, you know, most medical specialties mm-hmm. um, match in March, but urology matches in January. So I was getting ready for match um, you know, I, I thankfully matched. It was great. And then I took a trip with some of my friends uh, back to Houston just to like hang out with family and such. And one of my friends would not stop discussing this coronavirus thing that mm-hmm. none of us had heard. Um, and we gave him like a ton of crap for it. And we were like, what are you talking about? Like, this mm-hmm. is not like medically backed at all and stuff like that. So Thinking back to then, it seems like quite surreal that one, even people in the medical profession uh, didn't take it as seriously as probably we should have. And two, to think like, wow, we had, you know, a a great deal of time to kind of prepare, you know, top down and we didn't necessarily do as well as we could have either. But overall, I think, you know, before this whole coronavirus thing started, I just had plans to relax with friends, you know, travel. I was supposed to go to Nigeria with my dad and such. Mm -hmm. But as the lockdown started happening, uh, things changed drastically. I would say it was maybe beginning of March when, you know, we started to hear little whispers of maybe they'll graduate fourth year medical students early and they might have us start our residency early. Um, This was around the time that we really saw the spike in cases in New York, Mm -hmm. which I think everybody, you know, was scared about, was panicking about. And um, that was the first time that we as students kind of got the first like shock of, oh, this is this is very serious, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yes, since then, it's kind of just been, you know, preparing for that and, you know, having all the support from people at Mount Sinai and then, you know, going forward to try to be as helpful as possible. Mm -hmm. I feel like for me, it was very much the same. I mean, I'm not in the medical profession, obviously, but for me, it wasn't people in the medical community, but rather like Chinese friends or like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think mainly Chinese friends, because I feel like a lot of them were saying like, how are you still going outside? And I'm like, it's January. Like, it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is not here. Like, it's fine. Um, and then they were saying my like family's hold up like in China, like they're freaking out. And I'm also yeah. freaking out as a result of that. And I felt like it was a little bit overblown. But then exactly. I remember like, Week after week, things changed very, very quickly, right? <laughs> very quickly, yeah. yeah. Um, how, do you, how did you, like, why do you think, and maybe there is no real good answer to this, but, like, why do you think that people who obviously should know better than anybody else that this is um, such a highly contagious and scary kind of invisible disease, like, how come, why do you think that in the American, like, medical profession, it wasn't as quickly, you know, detected? Or do you think it wasn't just nobody really... Like, it's just kind of like a herd mentality. Like, they're not like, no, my friends aren't freaking out, so I don't have to freak out, that kind of thing. Yeah, but everybody yeah, actually knew. <laughs> knew. <laughs> exactly. I think it was a little combination of both, right? I think there was, you know, a segment of, you know, medical professionals who knew immediately, you know, mm-hmm. from 
patient zero that, oh, this thing is going to make it over to the U.S. Mm-hmm. We're not prepared. And it's going to, you know, completely like wall up our medical infrastructure. And then, you know, there were some physicians, too, who, you know, like it's natural, like everybody else who kind of lives, you know, here in the U.S. thought, oh, this is a problem that is several, you know, thousands of miles away from me. And I don't expect it to ever, you know, reach my doorstep. The reasons for that are, you know, extremely like multifactorial, right? I think there is some, you know, ideological difference between, you know, mm-hmm. the U.S. and like other countries uh, in the sense that we value our freedom and we also kind of like believe that we're, um, you know, separate from the rest of the world in a sense and that we can, you know, weirdly protect our borders from anything. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. been the rhetoric for the last, uh, you know, four years or three, four years. So, yeah, there's that bit of ideology, I think. Some other things that played into it as well were people were just, you know, extremely like comfortable with the fact that it was a virus, right? And they saw mm-hmm. that the infection rate was, I don't know, in the beginning, people were claiming anywhere from like a three, maybe like two to three percent, like more mortality risk. And they thought, okay, you know, two to three percent doesn't sound crazy. If I, you know, was in a room with a hundred of my friends and somebody said two of us are going to die, mm-hmm. they thought, you know, that seems decent odds that I'll survive, especially, you know, a lot of people our age who are extremely healthy don't have these comorbidities and such. So, yeah, I think, you know, as multifactorial, there were a lot of different, like, you know, thoughts going around and mentalities that kind of led us into the situation now. Mm-hmm. And what motivated you personally to get involved? And what mm-hmm. were kind of the motivations of some of your friends too, I guess? But I mean, as you mentioned, like you had perfect time to go chill right before another phase of your difficult uh, academic career so like why now obviously there's the general sense of i want to do something and this is Mm -hmm. my profession at the same time not all doctors you know are the ones who like specialize in this right Um, of course of course of course yeah just kind of curious Um, about that yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. One, I will state I am not a hero, right? I was not mm-hmm. like the first person to be like, oh, we need to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I I think a part of me was like, you know, you join medicine to, you know, number one priority is to like alleviate disease, right? So whatever way you can do that, even if that means just talking to families, try to do it. So I think that was like my number one reason. It's like, okay, you join a profession, like, you need to, like, own up to the oath that you've taken and also, like, the spirit of the profession. So, yeah, that was number one reason. Secondly, it's like, you know, this is the where the non-hero part comes around. It's like, there's nothing to do right now. Um, <laughs> my medical knowledge is just dwindling by the day as I sit inside <laughs> and watch Netflix. It's better that I, you know, do something tangible <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, throughout the day uh, and try to help out, even if it is, like, small or big or whatever, uh, rather than kind of just, like, chilling at home and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think, you know, having conversations with some of my classmates, too, you know, people did it for all sorts of reasons. Some, yeah, you know, felt the obligation that, you know, you're a medical professional and if you can help out, you should. I would say a large part of us did. Some of us were restless, you know, we felt like, okay, if we're going to just sit down and wait until our residency starts in a couple months, why don't we just start now and want to get a little bit more accustomed to how the hospital works of course, help people and, you know, kind of reach like a good balance that way as well. Some people, you know, they have their families and friends working in the hospital. You don't want to see your friends suffering. You don't want to see your family members suffering and you you have the ability to help and you're not, you know, stepping up to help. So, uh, you know, that was some people's motivation as well. But I think everybody at the end of the day just wanted to be helpful. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that was really, really amazing to see from uh, all of my classmates and everybody that I know that kind of joined the effort. So yeah, it was it was nice. Yeah, I, I like how you brought up the idea of being a hero and plenty of memes going around these days about <laughs> that as kind of a joke, like yeah. um, not just for medical professionals, but for like the delivery people, oh, they're heroes. And it's just kind of, they're just doing like, that's what they have to do to survive and um, glorifying them this way doesn't really solve the problems that they have Um, like do they really want to be the one delivering your like amazon package probably not (laughs) just what you have to do Um, (laughs) and then i guess i mean you could probably think more deeply about that um, but at the same time what i immediately thought about was we are everybody else who is just a regular lay person is also involved right like by staying home that's like what we can do best and it may not feel like enough but like that's what we can do, right? That's the yeah, only yeah. skill set that applies to the situation is just um, staying home. And I mean, I guess for me in a really weird way, I wasn't even thinking about it, but, you know, doing stuff like this and just talking about it. But I think that it's interesting to also ask, like, what can you actually do at the hospital as a medical student? Um, oh, and mm-hmm. also right before that, sorry, I for- forgot to ask yeah. too. Uh, what percentage do you think of the what is it, class of 2020, um, mm-hmm. do you think, in New York, I guess, decided yeah. to come and graduate early and help out? Do you think that was a lot? I can't remember what the statistic yeah, was. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are exactly. I know, like, there are 29 of us at Mount Sinai currently. Um, and maybe 20 of those came from, like, my class. And my class is maybe, like, 140 people. So, you know, what is it, like, one-seventh? I don't know. I don't know that math off the top of my head anymore, but, you know, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. I would. Yeah, I think that's probably like quite normal between all the medical schools in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like not everybody chose to do it. Not even, you know, there were people who chose to graduate early. So we had our graduation on April 15th. So there were two people that chose to graduate early and didn't join the workforce, right? So there's all different kinds of uh, ways that people approach this and made decisions, right? And I think everybody made the best decision for themselves and mm-hmm. that's all you can really ask for. Um, and then, sorry, what was your, what was the other question? Oh, and then just, well, I guess to tie it together, like mm-hmm. when you did decide to graduate early and like help out, yeah. like what what happens like you know somebody like come to you and like tell you what to do or like do you have to apply to stuff um oh. so that's like a practical question and it's also tied to the question that i asked before which is as a you know you've studied for four years but like what can you mm-hmm. actually do on the ground yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. so those um, two are kind of connected yeah yeah so i'll just explain kind of like the process so even in medical school you know it's four years but two years is spent kind of just like brute learning memorization like you've never seen before Mm -hmm. i will never go back to that time i will never (laughs) never ever go back to that time and then two years is spent more clinical um where you're actually in the hospital you're like learning how to practice medicine right so we have like a decent amount of exposure and experience actually practicing medicine and how to like conduct ourselves in the hospital and how to like be useful and treat patients um so that kind of leads into kind of what we're doing now, which is we're building upon that, you know, uh, building block, right, of what we've learned during our third and fourth year about how to manage patients, how to treat them, how to effectively communicate, right, to other providers, which is a huge thing. And we're kind of doing those things now. So right now our duties are mostly um, like 
not as necessarily frontline providers for the COVID patients, but we can be frontline providers for those patients who don't have COVID in the hospital. And if you're the mm-hmm. frontline provider, that means you do everything. You know, you manage their medications, you put in orders, you, uh, you know, you pretty much manage the patient holistically from the time they come in to the time they're discharged. And then for those COVID patients, we usually are like second line providers. So we're writing notes, we're going to be putting in orders, we're communicating with other like consult teams and people in the hospital as to how to like approach their care and such. So it's actually, it's actually good practice for how the first year of our residency will, will most likely resemble. Now, another thing to like think about is like, I, like I said, I'm a urologist or like I'm a urology resident. I don't know how that's going to necessarily, or this time is going to translate to, you know, me mm-hmm. as a urologist and such. And like, you know, other people who maybe aren't as, you know, clinically medically focused. Um, what I mean by that, other people who are in surgical subspecialties, this might not be helpful for them. Um, but I think overall it's still good, like, tools to learn, uh, just how to, like, practice, like, general medicine uh, and how to be, like, useful in the hospital. So, um, yeah, those are kind of, like, the things that they kind of have us doing and such. Mm-hmm. And to go back to the earlier question, did, like, somebody come to you and tell you what to do or do you have to like find a like how does that work <laughs> you know yeah yeah, yeah yeah um so everything is med- in medicine is based off of like mentorship and like hierarchy so like even on all the teams that i've been with uh both in medical school and in residency it's like there's this structure you have an attending physician that's the person who has like completed their residency and fellowship that's like the legit legit physician under them you will have like residents Right. And then, you know, medical students and like whoever nurses. So, yeah, like I have adequate supervision to like everything that I do. Right. I can just escalate it to like the attending physician Mm. and they can, you know, instruct me on if it's the right thing to do, whether it's the wrong thing to do, maybe how to tweak it and such. So, yeah, it's been a lot of, you know, me asking questions. (laughs) Definitely, Mm -hmm. definitely as as somebody who's like new. But um, the nice thing, too, is they know that you've done four years of medical school and that you kind of understand the system. Um, so they give you a great deal of like autonomy to like, you know, make decisions on your own. Um, and if they need to change them or if they need to correct them, they just correct them. And they're always kind of like watching your back too. So, so it's been pretty good. Yeah. I think that's really helpful because for a lot of us, because this helps like build a picture of what's going on because <laughs> for a lot of people it's like these heroes are going out and like <laughs> fighting this invisible these thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, how you can like i guess that's also like a testament to like the way that a lot of i don't know at least for english and like our language is very very like battle oriented yeah yeah, we are fighting this thing and it's kind of like like you can't really fight it though you know like just taking notes and like um taking care of the non-covid patients is just as much of a quote-unquote fighting so yeah uh just to i guess just to flesh out that picture um Mm -hmm flesh out might not be the best word in this case just to round out that picture just a weird body language Dude, um, i like it i like it it's all good. uh just to like round it out like what do you do on a day-to-day um and if you think you've already described it enough that's fine we can just move on yeah, to another so question but typically show up um usually anytime from like six or seven i will um like chart check the patients overnight to see if there are any updates uh, usually get like sign out from the team overnight uh, for more of like a verbal uh, communication. From there, we'll like go off and see our patients in the morning. Um, we'll like divide up the list between how many frontline providers are there or whatever. We'll go see the patients. And then 
usually around like 8 or 8.30, the attending physician comes by. We discuss the patients with him or her, and then they go around on the patients as well. Then, you know, the next couple of hours are kind of just, you know, getting the work done, making sure that everybody's fine and that there are really no, like, hiccups over them there. And then later on in the evening, the attending provider usually comes back and we do kind of like another rounding uh, situation where we discuss the patients again and just give like general updates. And then we sign out to the uh, to the like afternoon team around like, you know, six or seven or so. Mm-hmm. Does that feel very just like a regular day at work? <laughs> you know, does yeah, that have, kind of that, have that feel? Yes, that's like the most regular it can be. Yeah, it's very, okay. very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like what I mean by that is more of like to kind of uh continue off of that idea of like this glorified battle thing it's like on a regular day-to-day you just feel like you're going to work (laughs) exactly exactly um i mean i think for physicians yeah you know the coronavirus and the whole covid pandemic thing has changed uh the way that we practice medicine for sure for sure nobody can say that it hasn't but you know the general like basic movements that a physician does throughout the day are pretty much the same at least you know for those patients for those people who are like you know treating these covid patients um yeah we're you know wearing more ppe and masks and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. the like general structure of how we do things in medicine is you know pretty much the same do you think that there's truth then to the i guess media representation where it's kind of hospitals (laughs) in new york are straight up chaos like uh things are just like it's like an e uh with what i'm not familiar with medical terms but like i'm assuming emergency room like emergency it's just like yeah, that yeah. all the time um at least that's from like my tv viewing knowledge yeah. of, <laughs> of medicine but like is that actually what it looks like to some extent or do you think it's actually way more i'm, I'm not going to say normal because i'm sure that mm-hmm. people are very understaffed but like yeah. that kind of chaos is not what you experience on every day or is it it kind of depends right and this is why these pandemics from an epidemiological like standpoint are very interesting. It just depends on where you are on that curve, right? So these last couple of weeks, you know, New York has been kind of like trailing off off of the peak and kind of like stabilizing. So yeah, it's been more, it's been more chill and relaxed. It kind of resembles the way that the hospital typically functions. And you can kind of see that the hospital is trying to shift back to normal function, right? But, you know, when we were at the peak, it was crazy, right? It was very, very crazy. It was a lot of running around, a lot of just trying to, you know, put out as many fires as you can and make sure that, you know, everybody is good very quickly. And, um, you know, a lot of, like, emotional uh, strife um, and everything that, you know, that the media has kind of been, you know, painting. I'm not sure if they've been overblowing it or maybe understating it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. You, you have to get a benchmark of how like the media represents other things and like be, mm-hmm. actually be there to get an understanding of that. But yeah, it was definitely, you know, it just depends on where you are in that peak or in that, you know, trough. And yeah, it can get, it can get crazy at times. Mm-hmm. And just to, as we like kind of come to a close, just to bring it back to our topic of families and family separation. Yeah. You were talking before we actually started recording a little bit about patients and how you know they're not allowed to see their families and yeah um that kind of difficulty and emotional uh strife there could you well if you I, i'm sure you can't talk about specific examples but you know like anonymous <laughs> examples is fine yeah yeah yeah. Um, um yeah so you know one thing that one thing that is extremely different between how we're treating patients now and how we used to treat them is there's limited family like contact and involvement 
um, on the floors, right? Like there's no way that a patient will have COVID and they'll let their family come and see them. We're not even letting like most families, even if they, their you know, loved one doesn't have COVID come into the hospital, right? Like we're trying to limit that as much as possible. So one thing that we're having to do is one, update families on a day-to-day basis. And uh, secondly, you know, if things do escalate to the point of, you know, end of life care, end of life decision-making, you know, X, Y, and Z, actually kind of be the liaison between them, the patient, and their family, right? And so one way that we've been doing it is we've been getting these iPads, right, to allow patients to see their loved ones and allow family members to see their loved ones as well. And, you know, those those conversations sometimes are extremely, you know, emotional and charged. As a physician, it's a very interesting place to be uh, where, you know, you've worked so hard to treat this patient Maybe your effort has been futile. And then, you know, you have to now be in this like very emotional mm-hmm. conversation with the patient and their family um, because you have to like maintain that distance, right? Like the whole social distance, you have to, you have to maintain that distance. So yeah, I think those conversations are extremely, you know, deep, very emotional. Um, and you really get to kind of humble yourself and appreciate what you have. Um, and appreciate the fact that, you know, as a physician, you're you're just treating these patients, right? It's not as if, thankfully, as of now, it's not as if, you know, I have the virus or anything like that or anybody in my family does. So just try to, you know, remain as thankful as possible, especially when you're in those uh, situations with other people who are really, really, really uh, dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And how is your family reacting to you going out there and... <laughs> It's like one of those things where I feel like for a lot of families, at least from my perspective, it's like yeah. um, when we see other families' kids going, yeah. it's like, that's great. But when it's, it's cool. actually like, you know, my kid going, uh, mm-hmm. then it's, you know, um, or my more. parents who are the postal workers, it's not as cool anymore. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, just how has that been for you, um, if you don't mm-hmm. mind talking about that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, uh, my parents are like super supportive. They've always been that way, thankfully. But... Um, I mean, you can definitely hear in their voice and just like their interactions that mm-hmm. they're worried, um, one for themselves, but definitely for me. And they, you know, do their best to check in. They, you know, don't want to bother me because they think I'm really busy, even though, you know, who knows how busy I am right now. Um, but yeah, you can definitely like hear in their voice and in their concerns that, you know, they're worried and such like that, which is completely understandable. But I try to, you know, reassure them that I have adequate, uh, you know, PPE and, you know, maintaining as much of like, you know, the social distancing protocols and just like the overall safety that kind of needs to be uh, maintained whenever you're taking care of these patients. So, you know, they're optimistic. They're hopeful that things, you know, end in the right way and and uh, as quickly as possible. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's like one of the greatest responses, right? Because uh, I feel like for some other families, it's like, you know, you're going against like your family's wishes. Your family, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last question that I had before sure. I let you go was just we're in this interesting position as a podcast where like, you can actually record. Like, I know that I'm going to listen to this when I'm old, probably, and be like, this is what I was like back then. <laughs> you know, like, this is what I was thinking about at that time. Um, yeah, yeah. And usually we end our episodes, like our actual episodes, with, uh, like, what do you want listeners to take away from the conversation or this historical event? You know, like, really, really big, traumatizing historical events. Um, yeah, in this yeah. case, it's not, it's the present. Like, it's not done yet. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering, I mean, you can answer this two ways. One is like, what do you, you can answer that question of what do you want people to remember or 
do like a kind of PSA, like what do you want people to know that they might not yeah. know? Um, or you could kind of also, I'm just making this up as I go right now, but record a message <laughs> to your future self. Like, to how, future. You know, like how do you feel right now? Um, you could do whichever one. I can give you Ooh. very much prep time for that. But I, I, uh, I love that. I love that. This is a, this is good. I'm like going to do both. Yeah, it's like both. a time capsule, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to send this to me. Actually, I'll, I'll well, make sure I reach out to it. It'll be on. <laughs> it'll be out on in the public. So uh, you can listen I love to that. it. Yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. So let's see. One thing that I would want people to remember of this time is, yeah, it's definitely just like, you know, cherish what you have. Cherish the people that you have. Cherish like the moments that you have. Because if this if there's anything this has shown us is like those things can easily be taken away from you like way quicker way faster than you could have ever imagined mm-hmm. so just you know you know be thankful let's see and then if i had to say something to my future self it would be what would it be i, I would say i hope you're a lot better at medicine now than <laughs> you were back then and i hope you i hope you stayed humble that would be it um what do you mean by being humble just to kind of um, dig that out a little bit. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I just hope, like, you know, it's interesting right now, you know, starting off and doing all of these things because you really see the deficiencies and you're not, it's like I've went to, I've gone to school for, I don't know, 20-something years. Mm-hmm. And I'm entering now a point in, like, my professional career where I don't know, like, 5 to 10% of, I maybe know 5 to 10% of what I should know and, like, the rest of it has to come over, like, a 40-year career. Mm-hmm. That's the way that medicine works. It's just seeing enough, being there enough, and, you know, you build it through experience. So, um, you know, I hope 40 years down the road when I'm 90, 95% at capacity or something like that, mm-hmm. I think back to, you know, these moments when it was just, you know, 5-10% at capacity, and I'm more hungry to continue to learn, continue to, like, you know, help people, continue to, you know, try to be as great of a physician as I can and that's that's hopefully it no I think I think that's a great note to end on is I mean we're I'm assuming you're like the same age as me so like you know mid-20s <laughs> um, yeah exactly where exactly. later on like I mean my side is not as cool but for your side um <laughs> you know like if you were in your 40s or something you probably wouldn't uh go out and um, yeah, help out exactly. uh, not only because you have more knowledge and like you're more specialized but also because you know you have more things to care to about lose. like i don't want to yeah, exactly my family and whatnot um and then on my end it's like i you know i don't want to make a podcast episode about this it's a waste of time like i of have course, to course. do 40 year old things <laughs> um <laughs> so i think that kind of it's just a cliche message of youth, right? Like to stay hungry, to do um, the things that, you know, inspire you in the moment, even if they are not as practical. But I mean, exactly. the thing is, maybe 50, 40 year old us will need that, you know, <laughs> kick in the future. So, um, I'm sure we will. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, dude, of course. Um, best of luck out there. Thanks so doing, much. Keep doing uh, what you're doing. doing. Quote unquote, hero's work. Hero work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah. it. tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to final albert for the wonderful music and see you next time